Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Book Journeys Radio, an interview series for authors in transformation. From the basic fundamentals of selecting a book topic and overcoming writer's block to advanced techniques for publishing and marketing your books. Don't forget to check out our complete schedule and archive shows at blogtalkradio.com forward slash book dash journeys. Now, get ready to make a difference with your book with your host, founder of the author incubator, Dr. Angela Loria. Well, hey, everybody. It's another week back at Book Journeys. I am so happy to be here with you today. Almost Christmas. Amazing how fast the year has flown by. And over the course of this year, we've talked to 50 different authors about their experience writing, publishing, and promoting their books. For many authors, it was their first book. For most of our authors, it was a nonfiction book, but you've heard about a variety of books and and you've heard from authors who have written many books. And throughout all of these stories, this is my hundredth and something uh, podcast that we're doing here, and throughout all of these conversations, the one thing that I always find to be true for all of our authors, and when I'm starting with new authors, I'm always thinking about this, is that when they made the commitment to write this book and get it out in the world, that moment, that decision, is in so many ways when the book was done. And then they had to connect some dots, but there is a critical decision moment, and maybe you're at that moment. Maybe as you're thinking about 2015, you're thinking, maybe I'm going to write my book in 2015. And the real key I would say from from all the shows that we've done over the past three years, is making that a decision and not a question, not giving yourself any room for doubt or failure, but really saying, this year my book is happening, full stop. So we'll see if today's guest breaks the chain. Um, Anne-Marie Thomas is the author of Making Maker, Kids, Tools and the Future of Innovation. I'm so excited to have your, her here on the show today. Anne-Marie, welcome. Thank you so much. So tell us about Making Makers. What is this book about and who is it for? So it's a book really for parents and educators um, looking at, you know, today's great inventors and innovators and entrepreneurs and what they were like as kids and how they got there and what what lessons we can learn from their life stories in how to raise the next generation of creators. And um, and so you said it's for parents and for educators. Is there a target? Uh, I'm I'm actually looking at your your website, which is makingmakersbook.com. And it looks like the kids are maybe elementary school, middle school. What, what's the age range that you're targeting here? Sure. Well, the ones on the cover actually are my, my children. <laughs> so that, so. that made it easier. <laughs> I, easy to get the permissions for the cover then. Um, but, you know, really th- this book ties in with the current maker movement that is something that's growing around the world, the idea that people, you know, have always been creators and celebrating that. Um, but we've been seeing more and more places calling themselves maker spaces and fairs popping up where communities get together and show the things that they're creating. There were over 100 of those worldwide last year. So while while my kids are little, and that's definitely one of the audiences I'm talking to, I also teach college, um, and and a lot of the lessons I learned were were me trying to find how best to touch, touch, teach them as well. 
Um, and it's interesting. I've heard from people who've read the book saying, well, they, they kind of need it now, even as 20 or 30-year-olds trying to find their way on things. So I, I'm hoping it's sort wow. of ageless um, in terms of the wow. lessons that we can all apply them. So let's talk about this. You know, what I'm familiar with is the Maker's Fair, and I'm sure there's more uh, more to that movement. But let's talk about writing a book that is that's part of a movement. How? What? What came first? Were you familiar with the Maker's Movement, and then you decided to write a book, or did you decide to write a book and find out more about the movement and think I want to make this a part of that? What, what's the order of events? You know, in, in this case, I, I was pretty closely tied to to making uh, and the maker movement and maker affairs. Um, I, I I've been very active with with I started with the magazines. I actually used to write a little bit for the magazine or and per- participate in some of their events. And then I actually had spent a year uh, leading a nonprofit that was focused on making making throughout the throughout the country really um, called the Maker Education Initiative. So through that, I was meeting makers you know, in you know all 50 states. Um, so, so in this case, it really was one where I, I was pretty intimately familiar with the topic and sort of living it at the time and, and really wrote the book that I wanted to read. As a, as a member of this movement? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, particularly as a parent. So I, I, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I got to meet lots of people who were doing great things, but I really wanted to know, you know, my own daughters are four and six, and my college students are typically you know, late teens, early 20s. How could I, as a teacher, as a parent, as a friend, as a neighbor, empower them to do the things that I was seeing, you know, at the early stages of the maker movement, mostly adults, doing those sort of things? You know, how do you get to that point? And how do you nurture that and so, let, let your own kids kind of love, grow up to be makers? What I love about this idea of having a book that's part of a movement, especially if it's authentic to you and you're a part of this movement and it's something you're passionate about, is that you get to sort of, um, I don't know, I want to say capitalize on or leverage the buzz that's out there when there's makers' fairs in different cities. You could certainly do, um, you know, press releases or different marketing related to the the makers' fair. You could obviously go to those events and have, you know, have, have a booth there or participate in some way with those events. So it's really a built-in marketing playground, and if you're already a part of that playground, all the better. You don't have to establish yourself. If if you weren't, I would say obviously go in first and develop those relationships. But I'm wondering how you have leveraged the community or worked with the community to get the book into the hands of people that are already in this movement. Well, Probably, probably the first and most obvious way is the book was, comes out of a series of over 70 interviews I did. So right away I had 70 makers you know, throughout the country who, whose stories I knew well, and many of them that, that ended up in the book. Um, and so they were they were and sort of part the way, of it. And by the way, those are people that have friends and family and people <laughs> who might want to read their story in the book. So brilliant, and Marie, exactly great idea for everybody. But but also, you know, I was fortunate that I was able to get interviews with quite a few people that are, that are fairly well known for what they do. And those were names that, you know, come up in, in many classes and workshops and such. So to be able to tell a bit about their childhoods, you know, that, that there was some leverage there. Um, I, you know, I think I think in terms of, of how to use the community, I was incredibly fortunate that the book itself launched physically at uh, World Maker Fair. Um, and and my publisher is Maker Media, which which also runs the the the, the featured fairs. And that fair um, in New York, everyone who was a maker at the fair was given a copy of the book as a gift for participating. Um, so so I couldn't have asked for a nicer way to get it in the hands of makers than than the publisher doing it for me. That's pretty nice. 
Um, let's talk about let's talk about your relationship with your publisher. Did your publisher ask you to write the book? Did you pitch the publisher? How did you get this? Sure. So I I was I was about to say it's probably an unusual story, but I suspect every book is an unusual story. Every um, book is an unusual story. Exactly. That's everybody's book journey is unique. That is what I have found consistently. Yeah, so this publisher, the publisher I work with, Maker Media, um, I, I already knew them quite well because I, I was I had written a few pieces for their magazine over time, and I had participated in fairs, and then their founder was also the founder of the nonprofit that I led. So, so we were always kind of in the same orbits. And and around I think it was 2010, I had a chance to give a talk on this on this um, topic at the TED conference in California, a short talk, and realized that I, I wanted to know more about it. I, I wanted it to be a book. And so for a couple of years before I even started writing it, I was already talking to friends who were writers and publishers about this book that I wanted to write. And so, so I, I was lucky that I'd kind of built the relationship already, and they, they knew that it, that it was in mind. And so when I really finally got a proposal together and had the, the outline of what I wanted to write, um, the publisher already knew it was kind of coming, and we were able to discuss it. And I'd, had, I'd been approached by a couple, at least one other publisher, who, who was asking if I'd write a book. And given that this is a book about a movement that is very closely tied to some specific organizations, the chance to publish with the organization that really started that movement is, is you know, something I think That I, I seems like a no-brainer. Up. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. So you said that it took you kind of, you were mulling this idea over for a couple years, what got you to the proposal stage? What made it concrete for you? Was there a was there a, a catalyst moment, or how did you know now was the time? You know, I I, I was working on it a little bit for myself. Um, even before I was sure that I'd do a proposal, I'd, I'd started drafting some things, and I. Basically, the minute I got the idea for the book, I started doing interviews. I told people I was thinking of writing a book, and could I interview them? And I was shocked mm-hmm. that I, I really got no no's. Um, so I was hmm. recording and typing and, and writing up short little brief summaries of interviews for about a year or so before I put together the first proposal. And realized at the time I had a first proposal that I was really too busy to want to focus on that. Um, I, I have two, two little girls, and I, I was a pre-tenure professor at the time, teaching three or four classes a semester and running a research lab. Um, so, you know, I, I worked on it knowing that I was doing it kind of kind of for myself. I, I wanted it to exist in the world, but I didn't necessarily have a timeline, and so I, I, I dabbled on it. And then after a year of leading the maker education uh, nonprofit as executive director, um, I had a few months before I was going back to teaching and decided that I was going to really plan on throwing myself into it that spring and summer. Um, and that was, that was, I think, the catalyst of, okay, now I have the time to really write this proposal. I have the time to get some sample chapters together that I like, um, you know, the luxury of time. Well, let's talk about that because, and you're a mom, you're a, you know, you've got a busy career, especially pre-tenure. There's not a much harder time in a, in a academic career or life than when you're trying to make tenure. And, in many ways, there's never a good time to write a book. Um, do you recommend to people that they wait for a time window, or how do you know when to wait and when to just say there's never going to be a good time, I'm going to dive in? That's a good point. And I, I, ended up, I did, did wait to get tenured first, I guess. But I think for nice. me, part of my job, I'm lucky, is that you know, as, as a professor, I, I do write a lot, so, but, there, but it's typically – you know, 
research papers required. or it's <laughs> it's required or or you know I, I I do a little some unusual writing I guess in that I, I will write some op eds for magazines or or more pieces geared at parenting. Um, so you know I, I had that already and knew that you know worst come to worst I could always turn this into a series of short articles. Um, <clears throat> but I think I think I did I did I do realize that you could easily put something off forever. And I think at some point right. I also realized that someone else is going to write this book. When when I first when I first had the idea of this book it was kind of as the maker movement was just taking um, some of the, the center stage that, that, that it has now. I mean, it had been around for a while, but it was really building momentum. And I realized that if I didn't get these stories on paper soon, someone else would write it. And if, and if I didn't think that they'd write a better story than me, then I better write it soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they, if they could write a better version of it that had covered all the things I wanted, awesome. I'd rather read it than write it. It's probably less work. But <laughs> I, I wasn't sure anyone had that perspective, and I hadn't heard that perspective yet. And, and so I think that was kind of the catalyst of, okay, this, this has to happen. At some point, this will be stale. And it's not fair to all these people who gave me their stories. Um, but I think so you have to make, just make time. You said in terms of, of being a mom. That I like. Here's one of the things that I like that you did. Without all the way committing, you still move forward on your book. And that's the question I want to put to listeners is even if you're not ready, even if you're, you know, moving overseas or your mother-in-law just moved in and has a serious medical condition or you're remodeling your kitchen, I've heard every reason in the world for why I'm putting off writing my book. Um, But even if you have a reason that you're like, now is not the time, I need to get tenure first, whatever your reason is, is there even a small way you can keep moving forward? And I love the the logic that you use. You're like, even, like, worst-case scenario, I have these interviews. I use them for an article. I use them for a blog post. Like, they don't necessarily have to go to waste if I don't have to write, if I don't end up writing the whole book. Um, and I think that's a way to kind of keep yourself motivated, even if it's only doing an hour a month towards your book. But moving forward, I think, is so much the the key to to keeping that idea alive. Exactly. That was little little bits here and there. And and I also had a lot of talks that I give on topics like this. So I started working in some of the stories and testing some of the stories and how I presented them in in you know formal and informal talks I was giving. So even even if I wasn't getting them on paper, I was trying to really wrap my wrap my words around what I was trying to convey. So, right, and that's actually helping to formulate the book, even though you're not actually writing it. The more you say it, the more it becomes clear when you sit down to write. So um, I want to take a minute to talk about, because we've been talking about this maker's movement, and as we're talking, it occurs to me not everyone may be familiar with this. So why don't we just take a step back and, and tell people about the maker's movement and really the role that kids play in it and and you talk about the future of innovation, What? how does the future of innovation connect to the makers movement? Sure. So, you know, makers are anyone who makes something, um, which is a beautifully simple definition. It can be someone who makes robots, or it can be somebody who makes bread. It can be someone who, you know, makes music. It can be someone who makes the instruments or makes the music or writes the song. Um, so, so really it's a celebration of creating uh, more so than consuming. You know, you know, can you make these things for yourself? Um, the, and so the, obviously we've always been makers. We wouldn't be here if we weren't makers. We have shelter, we have food, we have clothing. But the maker movement in kind of its current in, incarnation um, started with a magazine called Make Magazine in 2005 that was sort of very reminiscent of pop, popular mechanics and had how-tos and profiles. 
And the year after it came out, that publisher decided to be fun to see if people got, wanted to get together and basically do the magazine in person and have a fair and, and showcase the things that people make. Um, again, with this emphasis on a hodgepodge of, of making, not, not just robots and not just food, but everything all in one place all kind of jumbled together. Um, and it was a hit. They had like 20,000 people that first year, and that's grown to nearly 200,000 people 10 years later. Wow. Um, yeah, at one fair, and 100 fairs around the world. Um, and with that, we, we've seen more and more places you know, basically creating things they call maker spaces, which you can imagine like a gym, but instead of the treadmill, you've got a milling machine or a sewing machine or a laser cutter or a 3D printer. Um, and people are really embracing this. You know, as an engineering professor, engineer is a very formal term. There's, there's things that that means. There's degrees that you get or, or exams that you take. And the nice thing about making is that anyone can call themselves a maker. We, you know, we all are a maker in some way, likely. You know, did you, do, you, do you sew? Do you cook? Do you build robots? Do you code? Do you do, you do origami? Um, and and that, that community has grown in a way that people share their projects online and give advice to each other and start small companies or, or you know, crafting circles. Um, so it's a very grassroots way to celebrate, really, creation. And are books a part of that? Is being an author celebrated within the maker community? You know, many makers have created books, particularly on how-to, so everything from e-textiles to, you know, how they, how they make different types of mechanical devices or electrical devices, um, and, and that's definitely part of it. And I think, you know, the nice thing is that this is such a kind of a tool and media agnostic uh, or, uh, movement that, that, yeah, being an author is, is very much part of it. You know, often, often in a maker fair, you'll find lots of books and you know, kits and ways to learn new things. Um, so, so it's sort of fun to see people finding different ways to share. You know, many will do online project posts, but, but quite a few will also do an, you know, a traditional book. So you obviously had had experience as a writer in this uh, in this industry and and in academia, and you've written other long works like this. What what were the surprises? Is there anything that surprised you about uh, the process of writing this book or of publishing it? Anything you've learned since that sort of was different than you expected? Um, you know, I've been mulling questions like that over in my head, and I think mm -hmm. I was lucky in some ways that I didn't necessarily expect much. I wasn't quite sure how to do this. I'd, I'd co-authored a short book for kids on a specific project once, actually a few months prior, but that was very different because I was help, giving, helping someone with the technical content. In this case, you know, I'd never really written I – ne I've never written something so long with – Zero equations. In technical and academic writing, you typically don't have anyone read it until it's done for the most part. You, know, it's you, you have the full thing done, and you send it off, and someone sends a review and tells you how much they hate it, and then you rewrite it, and hopefully it ends up in the journal, journal or in the conference. Um, and so, so showing someone the work while I was doing it and sending it to the editor and the publisher you know, in, in chapters rather than here's an entire book, um, that, that's a very exposed feeling. Because um, it means you're getting you're getting feedback, but you're also getting judgment throughout the whole process. So I think being willing to show the rough drafts is something that that's a little bit different from my my typical writing. And the the editor you worked with, the developmental editor, was this a part? Is this somebody who works for your publisher or works for your publisher? It was yes. So so I had someone there that I was sending it to, um, and I, I will admit before I sent before I even sent the proposal in, I did work with someone. I, I had a friend who, ah, was a writer, and I, I wanted I wanted some eyes before I sent it to a publisher. So I did my my sample chapters. I did send to a friend who who teaches some college writing classes, and just 
you know, to get the initial reads, and that helped build some of the confidence to send it off elsewhere. So not even a professional so, editor. So talk to, I mean, I think that's a really important part of the process is just getting comfortable with being seen is, is so much of the journey for so many of us. Let's talk about how you worked with your publisher. Obviously, you had a relationship with them going in. What would you say your publisher was really great at and what were things that really have fallen on you um, that maybe they weren't so great at or just wasn't their job? Hmm. Well, I think one thing they were really great at was was reading it from the point of view of the folks who would be reading it eventually, um, given that it was a publisher that, that is very active in this movement and th- that know that the publisher and the editor and many people in that office know many of the people that are covered in this book. Um, it, it was nice knowing that they were going to be able to read it kind of as experts. I mean, they, they all really were. They, they, they know this topic as, as dearly as I do. Um, and so that, for me, that was comforting um, because I, I had a little more trust that they'd catch it if there was something off in the, in, in the book a bit. Um, I think in terms of things that fell a bit more on me, um, I think learning the process of we, we decided towards the end actually to include pictures. Um, so there, there now are there are quite a few pictures of lots of folks as as uh, children, a lot of the inventors that I spoke to, um, and that was that mm-hmm. wasn't initially in the plan um, to have to have all those pictures throughout of it. So I learned quickly how to how to start approaching people for pictures and finding the right resolutions and such. But even there, they're quite helpful. Yeah, that's an awesome contribution. And um, how about since the launch? Your book came out, what, in September, I think? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, So what role has your publisher played in promoting the book, and what have you been doing, and what's been most effective? Sure. So, you know, I think it's funny. I, I don't know what I should be expecting in terms of you know, promoting a book and selling a book again because I have the luxury of being brand new to this. Um, so yeah. the, the, initial, the initial launch of the book, we did launch it at a Maker Fair, which was incredibly lovely to have that option. Um, and, you know, they, they helped with giving quite a few talks at the fair and making sure that the book was available at the fair. Um, then moving forward, um, we really chose radio as a strategy. So, so we worked, they worked to set me up um, with a number of radio interviews, particularly in cities that were having maker fairs. Um, so having an interview around the time that a maker Such fair a was coming, fit. which worked out yeah, beautifully. Um, mm. So that really was our, our main, our main approach. Um, and, and I, I, the book is out there. I, I occasionally hear from teachers and others who are reading it. So, so apparently, people are finding their way to it, and that seems to be working. Um, you know, again, the naivety of being new. I don't really have a benchmark to compare it to, uh, which actually makes for less stress. Uh huh. What What for you is success for your book? What do you want your book to do? Uh, you know, I think that there there were a couple of benchmarks that I had ahead, and one was that everyone whose story is told, um, I wanted them to be comfortable with how their story was told, um, and they all had the chance to read their own sections um, before it went to print. I wouldn't have printed something that they that they didn't want printed um, because these are personal re- recollections of childhood and sometimes some of the dangerous things I did as a kid. Um, so I knew they mm-hmm. were all okay going into it with how I presented their own stories. But then I went, I'm very much looking forward to sending out the first batch of books to the people who make up the book and seeing how they liked how their stories fit in with the other, other stories. Um, and right away, you know, I started getting, getting positive feedback from that. So, so to me, that was, that was a success. I, I had done it. It was out there. And the people whose stories I told, who had entrusted me with their stories, um, they, were, they were happy with it. 
And now, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be a little bit slower for it to get out to people. But even you know, just a few days ago on Twitter, I had a teacher telling me that she you know, loved this book and it impacted how she taught. Um, and, and things like that are incredibly meaningful to me. Um, it, it's, all sort of, it's all sort of a surprise and a gift because I, I don't have you know, an expectation. So, so anything that comes is, is, is a good thing. I love that. And what do your kids think of the book? Have they were they involved in creating it, other than being a, such lovely cover models? Yes, um, you know they were. They they are quite young. Uh, one is one is four, and one is six. Um, the six year old has has traveled to fairs. She's actually given talks at fairs. She's made some of her own clothing for fairs. So she she approved the pictures that she uh, that she is in in the book. Whenever I use their pictures, you know, once once they turn three, we we. We made the rule that once you're three and above, you have to approve any picture mom uses of you. So, so she helped with that. Um, she hasn't read the book yet. Apparently, my mother read part of it and put them to sleep with it at one point. But no, other than that, nice. they haven't read it yet. Um, and you know, I, I think this is not a book I wrote for a six-year-old, so it might be a while before I hear what they think of it. They think That's it's kind awesome. of cool that they're on a cover. They like so. Something. That is pretty cool, right there. So what advice, both as part of the makers movement and as as the author of this book, what advice would you give people who want to create a book, especially a how-to book, something instructional, and maybe it's something they're already good at and they're, or they're involved with, but they can't quite motivate themselves to to finish the writing project, to get it published, to go through the whole thing. What advice do you give people um, to to reach the, the the achievement that you have of getting your book published? Well, you know, actually, you're right. It is very similar to what I would say about making and, and the maker movement is you just get started. You just have to get started. You're not going to finish it if you don't start. And you can make a million reasons for why you're not starting. You don't have the right tool. You don't have enough time. Um, and, and you won't ever finish if you if you don't jump in and do something. So I think that's quite simply, and it seems you know, maybe overly simple, but you just have to start. And and what's your uh, solution for starting things that you don't finish? How do you, because there's so many people that have three or four or five manuscripts that are started on their computer that aren't finished. So how do you how do you finish projects? How do you advise people on that? Well, I think the best thing for me with this book was, you know, getting the initial proposal together. I probably dragged my feet a little bit because there wasn't a deadline. And eventually I, and I got it to a publisher, then it was there, and I was given deadlines. And I think the deadlines for me are incredibly effective, whether they're self-imposed or whether they are editor-imposed, having a deadline that you need to meet. Um, and it's a little too easy to push off your own deadlines. So I, I found sometimes mm-hmm. if I really wanted to get things done, I had I had friends who I promised chunks of the book by a certain date. Um, and, and that was, it's not quite as scary as, as the, the fear of missing a deadline with your, with your publisher, but it's, but to me, that was enough of, a, of an incentive that I, I didn't want to embarrass myself by having someone have set aside time to read a chapter and not getting it. Um, so, so, you know, forcing myself to have my own deadlines that, that had some uh, possibility for repercussions if I didn't meet them. It's like me telling a friend you'll meet them at the gym. You're much more likely to show up because they're waiting for you. You're probably going to actually show up, whereas if you just promise to yourself, it's easy to be like, I'll go later, I'll go tomorrow. Exactly. So I think that's that's great advice. I have one last question for you. I am so curious. I'm going to post this on Facebook, um, but your headshot is Stunning and really unique. And I wondered, uh, and and people can look at this. Um, 
can, they can look at this on facebook.com slash A-L-A-U-R-I-A-M. I'm going to post this picture in a second. Tell me about this picture. What does it mean to you, and how is it created? Uh, yeah, so that picture is courtesy of an amazing photographer, Mike Akern, who is a photographer here at the University of St. Thomas. Um, and my lab, I run a playful learning lab, and one of the, probably I guess the, the, the top hit out of our lab is something called Squishy Circuits. We developed recipes for conductive and non-conductive Play-Doh that let people of all ages, particularly young makers, sculpt circuitry. So plug in a battery and now you can sculpt something that will have lights or sound or motion. Um, and the university magazine decided to do an article on it, and Mike, who's just a stunning photographer, um, had the idea of having a picture where I was wearing some lights. Um, and so, so through his patience and amazingness with lighting, I was we were we created some uh, kind of custom LED jewelry with some batteries and some LEDs, um, and then he kind of worked his magic with finding the right the right light to make it to make it kind of work. Wow, that looks amazing. Well, I hope people get to check out a, a very illuminating picture of author Anne-Marie Thomas, the author of Making Makers, Kids, Tools, and the Future of Innovation. Thank you so much for sharing your book journey with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we will be back, uh, but we will not be back next week because it is Christmas. And we won't be back New Year's Day. So we will be back in 2015, restarting uh, Book Journeys Radio for 2015. Have a great rest of the year, everyone, and we'll see you next year. This has been another episode of Book Journeys Radio, where we're changing the world one book at a time. To find out more about how you can get your book written, published, and promoted, visit www.theauthorincubator.com.